gospel. Let's listen to God's word from Mark 15, verses 21 to 39. This is God's word. Let's listen to him speak to us. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who could destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray. Father, what delights you the most? What fills your heart with joy? What do you consider that fills you with complete joy and satisfaction? Surely it is the death of your own Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you this morning, may we treasure what you treasure. May we see the beauty you see. May we love what you love. Align our hearts with your heart. Help us to think like you think. We ask it so that we can go away from here happy, satisfied, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been coming for any amount of time, you know what we're doing. Uh, we're doing a little series in Mark's Gospel called This is Jesus. Four little stories in Mark's Gospel. 
four little snapshots out of Mark's gospel. And uh, we're not pretending to do everything in those four little snapshots. We're just looking at four things about Jesus, uh, getting ready for our deep series in the book of Deuteronomy. And remember how we began this series. We began the series, have a look at this slide here. I put this picture up for you. Uh, some of you will know what it's about. Perhaps you haven't been coming. This is what this picture is about. I asked the question, what would satisfy the human heart? What will make our souls content? We know what satisfies our tummies. Uh, we know what sometimes satisfies our bodies. What will satisfy the human soul, our restless hearts? The, the spirit of man is insatiable. What will make it satiated? What will make us satisfied? And I suggested to you, I think, two things. We need truth. That is, we need to find something that is true. Something, I've called it, food for the mind. Something that will satisfy our minds. Well, we need more than that, because I don't know about you, but two plus two equals four doesn't satisfy me. Uh, it's true, but I need more than that. I need, and forgive me if you're a geek and you think two plus two equals four is beautiful, um, but moving on swiftly, um, but I need something beautiful. I need something that catches my heart, something that is true and beautiful at the same time. If I can find that, wow. I'll be, my soul will be thrilled. I don't want to love something that's beautiful, but it's not true. It's a fantasy. And I don't want to love something that's beautiful, uh, but isn't true, or something that's true and not beautiful. We need both. I've suggested to you, as we've carried on through the series, I believe your search will culminate in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is ultimate truth. Jesus Christ is ultimate beauty. He brings those things together. He is the best conceivable news because he is both true and surpassing beauty. I, I have a look at this verse which I, I put up for you a while ago. The law was given through Moses. Fair enough. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And as I've gone through Mark's gospel, only two really, I've tried to show this to you. I've tried to show Jesus Christ that as, as beginning with that authority. You remember in Mark 1, there are all those areas of our lives that disappoint us. And I tried to show you last week that Jesus is the recreator, come to restore the world and the universe and make it as beautiful as we could hope for, imagine all of those things. Now, if that is true, if it is true that Jesus Christ is both truth and beauty, here's the question for this morning in our third talk. Why doesn't everybody see it? Dwayne, you, you, you talk so convinced. Why can't everybody see this? Why do some people think a jet ski is better than Jesus? Why, if this is true, if Jesus is true, if Jesus is surpassingly beautiful, why can't everyone see it? Why can't everybody see it? Well, have a look at this picture, because here's the answer. Sin. What the Bible teaches us is that sin has clouded our minds. We are different. We think 
in ways that we ought not to think. Our sin has distorted our minds. Have you ever seen a baby bird look at its mother and refuse the worm that she offers it? But my children won't eat the good food I give them. What's happened to their minds? They know it's good for them. Our minds have been affected by sin. And the same with our hearts. Our hearts have been distorted. They've swerved away from what is beautiful. And so that's why my picture, which may or may not be helpful, there is a barrier so that truth can't penetrate and beauty can't come inside. I can no longer see these things. Let me try and show it to you from the Bible. Firstly, our minds. Look at this verse here. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Bible does not say that unbelievers are stupid. We are not cleverer than other people, not at all. What has happened though is that their minds have been blinded and they can't see beauty. They can no longer see the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What's so amazing about Jesus? I really don't get it. What's so amazing about Jesus? I don't see it. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But what happens if your eye doesn't see properly anymore? Secondly, it's not just our minds. Look at this verse here. Next verse. It's our hearts. Although they claim to be wise, uh, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. How's this for a change? How's this for an exchange? For images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator and it doesn't change him who is forever praised amen this is normal experience this is my experience what we do is we exchange created things for the creator and we love jet skis more than we love the God who made absolutely everything and we can't stop seeking glory. Do you know they've built the biggest temple in Perth? Did you read about it? We've got the, one of the world's most modern state-of-the-art temples. Uh, I'm talking about the new stadium. And what we do there is we go and we seek glory. And my goodness, you can't even get a ticket. It's sold out. Because we gather in crowds and we worship glory. The glory of victory and sport. It's not a bad thing, by the way. I'm also going to be watching the Scorchers on Thursday night. Um, uh, but that's not the point. Is we exchange that for the Creator? It's mad. We've gone mad. Our hearts have grown dark. And so, have a look at my diagram again. This is what sin has done. Sin is a swerving of the mind, which is our wills from God. It's a swerving of our hearts, our desires, our affections have been altered, they've been swerved from the creator to the creature. This is not naughty people. This is not bad people. This is me. This is you. This is all of us. So here's the question. What will break that barrier down? In my diagram, what will break that barrier down? 
How can I sit in church Sunday after Sunday? When will I come to the place where I truly love Jesus from the heart? I'm already convinced. Yeah, of course Jesus is true. What's going to break that down so that I will love him? That I will see him not just as true, but as incredibly beautiful. Will being good do it? Will being good break that barrier? Will education? Will religion? The answer is, there is nothing that will break that down, thanks Sean, other than love. What is the most powerful force in the universe? What is it? It's love. What captures your heart? What can capture your heart? Hamburgers? Only love. Overwhelming love. Love is the only thing that can capture our hearts. Love is an action. Love's not just feelings. Feelings won't capture my heart. Feelings in action. Love inactivity, love doing something will break down that barrier and deal with my sin. Jesus Christ has done that. Jesus Christ has done something utterly unique. He has done something no one else has ever claimed to do. He has done one intense act of divine love that has removed our sin and dealt with it. He has broken down the barrier. He was crucified for us. That's what Jesus Christ has done. What is love? Surely love is self-sacrificing for the good of another. Who has done more? than Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, greater love is no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Let me show it to you from Mark's Gospel. We're going to look at three things from the cross. Let me show you love in action. Number one, it'll all be there for you. Number one, we're just going to break it down very simply. At the cross, God's judgment fell. At the cross, God's judgment fell. Have a look with me there in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, isn't it interesting that Paul prayed for um, Libya? I didn't know he was going to do that. But that's where Cyrene is. Cyrene is in the top right-hand side of Libya. It's a little fertile area there. Anyway, Simon comes from Libya, but there you go. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. Now, I love the way the Bible is history. Who here can think this is myth? This is the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know Alexander? He works down the road. You know Rufus? The guy with the, uh, you know, it's people, he's writing to people who knew these people. In fact, if you go to the book of Romans, uh, Paul says, say hello to Rufus for me. You know, this is history you're dealing with. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh 
but he did not take it and they crucified him. Now the reason they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, that's a mild analgesic or however you medical folk pronounce it. What it does is when you lie the victim on the cross and you're about to drive those nails through his wrists and through his ankles, they usually pass out. And what's the fun in that? Who wants to torture someone who's passed out? I mean, there's no fun in that. So what they do is they give them this drink just so they can handle that excruciating, exquisite pain so that the people can carry on and we can have our fun. And they offer this to Jesus, but he wouldn't take it. I'm not going to go into that, but I gather from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is determined to drink one cup and one cup only, the cup of God's wrath. Um, but he refuses to drink it. Uh, and they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take, which is exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. What you're getting here is this is not a helpless victim. Poor Jesus, you know. This is going according to Scripture, the way God said it would go. That's in Psalm 22. God said this would happen. You know, this is not just one of the many victims. I was reading the other day, Crassius, one of the Roman senators, when he put down, I think it was Crassius, when he put down a rebellion by the slaves, he crucified 6,000 people. When Jerusalem was conquered, they crucified Jews. So they, Josephus said, when you stood there, you couldn't see the end of the line of people being crucified. Romans did this all the time. Jesus is not just one of those many. Because his is going according to scripture. There's a plan here. There's a purpose. And it was the third hour, verse 25, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, that's very important. What's his crime? Every time you crucified someone, there was a little post-it note, a little yellow post-it note, flapping, which said robber, or murderer, or whatever you did, runaway slave, or whatever you did. What's Jesus' crime? What did he do wrong? The answer is, he's the king, so we'll crucify him. It's the only crime they could write. Here is the king, so we'll crucify him. Verse 27, he wasn't alone. He was always numbered with sinners. They crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him. They wagged their heads saying, Ha! You would destroy the temple, build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. Can't save himself. Let the Christ, that means King, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Where is God in all of this? I don't know about you, but everyone's talking. Lots of chatty chatty. Lots of laughter. Lots, lots of mocking. Where's God? What's his response? Well, it's there for you. Look what happens in verse 33. And when the sixth ark had come, here's God's response. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What does God do? What does God say? The answer is, he blots out the sun. It's almost as if to say, there is nothing that ought to shine when my son hangs on the cross. This alone should be in the spotlight. 
Nothing else is of any consequence or significance. But it's more than that. Because anyone who knows the Old Testament will know darkness is a sign, a vivid, graphic picture of God's judgment. When you see darkness, you know that God's judgment is falling. The opposite is so easy. I mean, uh, the light. Light is a sign of God's favour. A rainbow. What's a rainbow? A rainbow is just a picture of God's grace and mercy. Darkness is a sign of judgment. At the cross, God's judgment is falling. The question is, Who's it falling on? God is angry. The sun goes dark. God is angry. Who's he angry with? Who's his judgment falling on? Well, that's the second thing we see at the cross. Number two. At the cross, such a surprise. Jesus was forsaken. But I'm scared that's a typo. Is it? Yes. Yes. It's Jesus was forsaken by God. Look with me at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the people there, now folks, it's very crowded. It's very... You remember? It's the Passover. People have come from all over the world. There are crowds of people. There are religious people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. There are the Romans. Hordes of Roman soldiers everywhere. It's occupied territory. There are crowds. There are visitors. Oh man, think about the families of the robbers. They must have been there as well. There's all the families, you know, cousin Joe and Uncle Bob, and they're all looking at their, their son being crucified. There's families there. There's, there's women that follow Jesus. There's curious onlookers. I came today to get a souvenir, and, and they happen to be crucifying this dude. And Well, I haven't seen one before. It's a bit bloody, but, uh, you know, I'm, I was curious. So I went and walked. And it's curious. There's crowds of people. Only one of them is abandoned. By God. Out of all those people, only one of them is God forsaken. And would you believe who it turns out to be? Jesus Christ. It's astonishing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry. Hear this. It's a cry from within the Trinity. We know that Jesus is God. I proved that to you last week. Jesus is God. Yet here is the Son crying out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? It's a cry from within the Trinity, between the persons of God himself. It's as if God's own heart is torn apart. Why? Why are you doing this? Only a few chapters ago, God spoke from heaven. Do you know what he said? This is my son, in whom I'm super stoked. I'm well pleased. Now he abandons him. What changed God's mind? What has Jesus done? 
Well, the answer can only be seen in the effects. And that's number three. At the cross, God's judgment fell. At the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. And at the cross, we... How do we get into this whole picture? What's this got to do with me? Here. We can be accepted by God. Look with me in verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come, down, uh, come to take him down. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's so detailed. It's so specific. The temple is torn from top. This is a top-down movement. This is from up there. From top to bottom. When you think of the curtain of the temple, don't think of the shower you had this morning. You know, with the little yellow ducks and Winnie the Pooh. That, that's not what we're... It's not a shower curtain. This is 30 feet high. How high are those there, I don't know, I'm very bad with things, but there you go. It's 30 feet high. It's nearly a man's hand thick. It's a curtain that guards the Holy of Holies. No one gets to go to God. He is too holy for us to approach. It's a massive no entry barrier, no entry sign. Only the high priest goes in there and he only goes once a year and he goes carrying blood and he goes shivering and trembling and they tie a rope to him that comes out so that if he drops dead they can drag his body out. That's all true. And all of that tells us that the way to God is closed. But when Jesus dies, the way is opened. It's suddenly torn apart. At the cross, we can be accepted by God. At the cross, we gain access to God. Now let's switch our brains on. Why? What changed? It must be, as the rest of the Bible tells us, because at the cross, Jesus took our judgment. At the cross... Jesus bore our sin. He died in our place. He took our punishment. I was in Jesus when he died. He was in me. He is our substitute. And the result is that we can be accepted by God. What am I saying? Love has won. Love has taken down the barrier. Love has dealt with our sin. Love is self-sacrificing for the good of others. That's exactly what's being displayed in front of you today. Jesus Christ self-sacrificed. He gave himself for your good. What is the good? What is the good? It is God. Jesus died to get you to God. He died to give you the best, the greatest, the ultimate for all eternity. 
God the Son delighted in God the Father. For all eternity, Jesus stared at truth and beauty, and beauty and truth. For all eternity, Jesus happily gazed on the glory of the Father, and the Father delighted in the Son for all eternity. And Jesus died so you can do it also. So that you get to gaze on truth and beauty forever. So that your soul may be satisfied. Only this will satisfy your soul. A jet ski won't do it. I'm sorry. Only this. Only this will win your heart. What's the alternative? Well, oh, well look what Jesus went through. Should you close your heart to this kind of love, all that remains is, well, logically, a loveless eternity. Logic. Shut your heart to love and you'll go without love for eternity. You'll be excluded. In fact, if Jesus should hang in exquisite agony in the darkness under God's judgment, then to refuse his love, well, that's to endorse and accept and choose what he went through. And that's hell. And hell is real. And hell is what you will have if you reject Jesus for eternity. And Jesus described it as a place of darkness, weeping and grinding of your teeth forever. Surely that's logical. But what would you give in exchange for such love? What jet ski would you prefer to this? What would you, what's your personal? Some of you are thinking, I hate jet skis. This whole sermon's lost on me. I'm not interested in jet ski. Well, what knitting needles would you change for this? What would you choose? Well, I'll show you. Because you, you're never going to believe it. There are many things that people choose in place of this Here's one of them. It's all in our passage for you. I'm not making it up. You don't have all of it in front of you, but if you do have the Bible, it's in verse 9 and 10. Here's the first thing. Some people prefer their own glory to the glory of this. That's what the religious leaders did. Verse 9 and 10, I'll read it to you, of chapter 15. And he answered them. This is Pilate. There is Jesus standing there. Before he's crucified. And Pilate says to them, Do you want Jesus? Would you like Jesus? Listen to Pilate. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Listen to this. For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Envy. That's a great reason to reject Jesus. I don't want Jesus to be beautiful. <laughs> I want to be beautiful. I don't want my life to be about Jesus' glory. I want my life to be about my glory. That's envy. Him on his throne? Nah, I'm going to find my own throne in Perth. That's a great reason. I don't want Jesus to be the most important thing in the world. I want to be the most important thing in the world. It won't work in any relationship. You know this. It won't work in reality. You will end up in hell. If you the most beautiful thing to you then you is what you will get and you're going to be so bored hell 
is a place full of mirrors. What else could you swap God's love for? Well, some people just, it's not really about me. It's just I love other people. I prefer what they think about me. That's in verse 12 and verse 15. Uh, if you don't know, I'll read it to you. And Pilate said to them, to the crowd, What shall I do with this Jesus, the king? And the crowd shouted out to him, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? What's this guy done? And they shouted out all the more, Crucify him. Listen to this. So Pilate, oh, what a choice. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released a criminal, got Jesus scourged, and gave him to them to crucify. What did he prefer to God's love? He preferred the love of people. It's a whole crowd of people. I've got an opportunity to make them all love me, and I'm going to be voted as the number one governor they've ever had. I want to be popular. Do they want gay marriage? I'm going to give it to them because I will be popular. The majority will appreciate me. Some people swap God's love. Well, because they don't appreciate weakness. You talk to me about a cross. I don't want a God who was humiliated. I want a God who wins with big biceps. I want a victorious life. Weakness doesn't get my heart. That's the soldiers in verse 16. They, they lead Jesus away. Uh, they clothed him, uh, verse 17, in a purple cloak. They twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify. You know what? I can't handle weakness. You don't look like a king to me. I'm after victorious living. This is the theology of glory as opposed to the theology of the cross. Yes, Jesus died for me, but oh, if only I can get a promotion at work. Mm, please, Lord. Yeah, just give me this it's the theology of glory. It's the theology of success. It's the theology of victory. I want my Christianity to be victorious. I don't want it to be about dying and following a humiliated God. Then, of course, there are those who can't accept Jesus' cross because, well, they're like Job's friends. God doesn't let righteous people suffer. Look at verse 31. It's there in front of you. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. You, God doesn't let righteous people suffer. You, you, you're saving others. Why can't you save yourself? It's the theology of Job's friends. And yet, the irony is it's that what they're saying is so true. He can't save himself. Why? Well, because he's saving others. They are so right and they don't even know it. It is through weakness that we are saved. 
It is through dying that we live. It is through suffering that we find Jesus. Christians don't hate suffering. We patiently endure it because it's the way of our master. And lastly, some just prefer signs and wonders. Look at verse 32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross and we will see and then we'll believe. Just make my leg grow longer and I'll believe. I will know you love me when you heal me. Then I know you love me. But he's hanging on that cross. If him dying on a cross doesn't win your heart, nothing else will. Nothing else then there's, I guess we could also say there's the curious. Didn't you find that funny? Look at verse 36, 35. Some of the bystanders said, he's calling Elijah, which he isn't. He's saying Eli, Eli. And they think, oh, that sounds like Elia, Elijah. And so they get a roar one. Someone ran to fill a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him. Why do you think they're giving it to Jesus to drink? I think because they want him to shout louder. Maybe they all joined in. Because look what it says. Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. I, I love the curious people. These are the people who can never embrace Jesus' love. They're just curious. Let's see what happens. I go to church for a couple of months and I find it all very interesting. And then I drift away again because I prefer my jet ski. But after a while I come back again because I'm very curious. I love learning about these. I find it all very interesting. But their hearts never grasp it. They don't open up to Jesus. What's the right response as we close? Well, there it is for you. It's astonishing. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, please people, this is a man who has crucified so many people. He could crucify people in his sleep, which is pretty scary if he ever sleepwalks and you're married to him or something. But anyway, he, this guy can crucify people in his sleep. And yet this one was different. And when he saw that in this way, he breathed his heart, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It, it's, it's a pinnacle in Mark's Gospel. Here is the outsider. In fact, if you read a bit further, all the women too are seeing Jesus as they ought to. So it's the outsider. It's, it's the centurion, the pagan, uncircumcised barbarian who looks at Jesus on the cross and as he dies says this is the Son of God. What about you? How do you see it? How does your heart see it? Jesus Christ, for your mind, is true. This is true, with a capital T. It's true in any culture, it's true in any language, it's true in any context. It is truth. But it's not just true. This is love. This is love. Here is true love. Jesus Christ dying for you to bring you 
to the greatest thing God how do you see it why don't you give your heart to this I understand intellectually you can grasp it give your heart to it you know the way we ought to live is our eyes need to constantly constantly be saying not this not this I just saw the basketball court there just looked at me okay so you go to basketball and you love it but you need to look at it through your eyes and say not this this will not be my treasure or you need to go kite surfing and be out there on the island on a good day good wind good waves and you need to say with your eyes not this not this and then with your heart you need to constantly say this 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 is what is my treasure give your heart to it look at your bank balance let your eyes say to you lots of noughts I'm, I've always just got noughts <laughs> lots of noughts not this you need to look at the girl in the beach in the bikini and say lovely not this you need in your heart to say this open your heart to true love why don't I let you think on those things and I'm um, happy to take a question or two if there are any.